this hour's lecture anyway, is the fossil record. And uh, most people, or at least as children, are interested in, in fossils, especially dinosaurs. And uh, I was no exception. And uh, there's a lot of really interesting fossils that can be found in the uh, geologic record. And uh, um, mainstream interpretation, of course, is that they're uh, millions and millions of years old. And uh, from an Adventist perspective, uh, at least my perspective on Adventism, is that that's not tenable. It has to be one way or the other. Either these fossils are young and, and Adventism is true, or, or they're old and, and Adventism isn't true. So let's look at uh, a few arguments from both sides and see where you end up. Fossil record. It's interesting because uh, the fossils in the geologic column from Lois to Cambrian all the way up to tertiary and quaternary are very ordered. They, they are very predictable, uh, which is surprising given the perspective of a flood where you would expect some sort of chaos uh, sort of mixing up and stirring up things and things randomly buried, but they're not. In the fossil record at the lowest level in the Cambrian, you got single-celled organisms and worms and mollusks and things like that. You move up a little bit and finally you get the first vascular plants and then some primitive fishes and then finally uh, first reptiles and finally mammals. And it looks like it goes from simple to complex, just like in standard evolutionary theory. That's pretty much how it really looks. Uh, there's no real argument there. And so what possibly could explain this? Uh, can a massive flood or a series of closely spaced catastrophes explain such an ordering of the fossil record? And to be honest, it's somewhat difficult. And I don't know if anybody that I've ever read has a complete answer that satisfies all these problems. Uh, so there's, there's a few hard questions. If the fossil record represents a series of rapid catastrophes within recent history, why is it so ordered and predictable? Why do simple organisms appear in the lowest layers and progressively more and more complex organisms appear in higher and higher layers? Possible answers. I don't, I'm not suggesting that this is a complete solution to the problem, but these are some possibilities that are at least worth considering uh, and thinking about. Number one, in real life or in modern life, where do things usually live? Where would you expect if you would go look for something in a water column or in a geologic order? Where would you expect to find worms, mollusks, snails, etc., relative to, let's say, fish or ducks? Like, for example, imagine a lake. Uh, where would you expect in that uh, vertical orientation within the lake to find mollusks and worms and and uh, simple creatures, where would you expect to find it? In the mud, right? In the bottom of the lake. Where would you expect to find the fish? In the middle, somewhere, right? And where would, on generally speaking, where would you expect to find mammals and ducks and things like that? Not in the middle of the lake, right? On top, somewhere. So imagine a scenario, let's say I got a big giant uh, bulldozer and I'm going along, uh, bulldozing a whole bunch of mud, and it's a relatively small little pond, let's say, and I just slosh the whole pond in one shot with this bulldozer, a bunch of mud, or just a huge catastrophe, and I just instantly freeze everything in that pond, bury it, boom, like that. Where would I expect to dig it up a few years later? In what order, generally speaking? Generally, you, you expect at least a similar order, uh, as simple organisms and then more multicellular organisms, and on and on up you go. However, that doesn't explain everything. There's also um, an interesting paper that was published in 2001 
uh, in ecology research. And it seems like the relative abundance of creatures as they lived in life, the total population in population size is related to their distribution within the fossil record. Uh, they write, species identities and their relative abundances are non-random properties of communities that persist over long periods of ecologic time and across geographic space. This is consistent with species abundance contributing heavily to evolutionary patterns. In other words, if a species has a much greater size in population, more likely or not, you'll expect to find it lower in, in, a, in a column or in more uh, um, widely distributed in a bunch of ecologic niches or environments. And so if you have, let's say, trilobites that are millions and millions and millions of them, you'd expect them to be on very low levels as well as all the way up through all the higher levels. And that is, in fact, what we see in the fossil record as well. So relative abundance, not necessarily order of evolution, can explain evolutionary patterns uh, as per this paper, which I think is pretty interesting. General mobility as well. If you have a catastrophe and you happen to survive because you are able to escape a little better, uh, you have some. Uh, you can climb uh, mountains a little faster. You can move around a little better. You'll generally tend on overall to be buried higher. You'll survive longer. You'll not get hit as soon. Uh, you may be able to f survive the first few. Uh, hits of, of a, a massive catastrophe and survive a little longer and get buried a little later. Uh, there's also uh, sorting factors um, like sorting in water. Water itself uh, as a medium is a natural sorter of materials. Uh, for example, different types of pollen uh, thought to represent an evolutionary sequence may in fact represent a water sorted pattern to at least some degree because it's known that different types of pollens uh, sink uh, in a water column at different rates. Um, here's a, a uh, scanning micrograph of different types of pollens. And uh, deciduous pollens, for example, sink in water in a few minutes, compared to pine pollens, which float for much longer times and sometimes years before they sink. Uh, in 1933, Paul noted that pine pollen could retain its buoyancy for up to four years. So what would you expect? Would you expect pine pollens to be higher or lower relative to deciduous pollens in the fossil record? <coughs> higher, right? And that's exactly what, generally speaking, what you see. Pines are thought to have evolved after deciduous. Different morphologic expressions of the same organisms in different environments are also interesting. The exact same uh, creature in different environments will look different, which is uh, kind of startling. I got into this debate with Glenn Morton. He used to be a creationist, now he's an evolutionist. And one of his big arguments is foraminifera, or these plankton uh, creatures. Um, and you can see that lower, the early uh, Paleocene, uh, 645 million years, versus the late Paleocene, 58 million years ago, you can see a, an evolutionary sequence that's kind of gradual. You know, kind of a rounded look here, and then less and less rounded, and then more angular by the time you get up to here. Right? And so for a long time, this was believed to be an evolutionary progression and morphology. But then subsequent experiments came along, and it was found that all of these creatures are identical. It's just if you put them under different pressures and different temperatures, they take on different morphologic shapes. Same creature, different environment. Not an evolutionary sequence. So a few more problems for, for flood geology. How do you... How do you um, 
proponents of catastrophe like me explain some of these things. For example, termite nests have been found in the Morrison Formation. You know these termite nests underground uh, that are built in different regions of the world, especially Africa. Massive, massive termite nests. And this is generally what they look like. And these formations have been found in the fossil record, uh, which begs the question, how on earth during a massive series of closely spaced watery floods or catastrophes, do you get termites building gigantic nests like this, which today take you know, 50, 100 years to build? It just doesn't make any sense how these termite nests could have been active, termites could have been so active in Noah's flood. So uh, what's the prediction? What's the creationist prediction? For creationists, a long time have said that perhaps these are not really termite nests. Maybe they're inorganic in, in origin and uh, aren't related to any animal activity whatsoever. That was a, a creationist prediction. And so Ariel Roth uh, from Loma Linda, he went out to prove this or to uh, find evidence one way or the other. And uh, here's his pictures. These are pictures he sent to me. And you see that they kind of look like termite nests. And if you get a little closer, you can kind of see the, the tubes that were preserved. You see, that, and here's a, a coin for comparison, a penny. And so it looks kind of like, see these tube-like things? So those were the termite passageways, supposedly. Uh, and it looks kind of a lot like it. Um, but then when you look under at a higher power examination, under um, scanning electron examination, there are all these tubes right here. Whoops, sorry. The, this picture, the next picture is from this region right here. Uh, and even overlapping a bit, those things are actually quartz crystals uh, that are in these uh, tube-like structures that form these tube-like structures. And they're very, very pure. There's no, there's no contaminant, no organic matter contaminant. There's no remnants of termites. There's no, uh, no usually also um, termites, and this is a real termite nest. You know, they line up their little pellets in linear lines. See the line? They line them up. And there's none of that linear lining in these uh, formations. Also, they include uh, fragments of, uh, of their eggs and of uh, different creatures they caught, and also bits of wood and other organic mater uh, material. It's very rich in organic material. Uh, none of this is found in these uh, formations. Here's a closer exam uh, photograph of the wood fragments that you see in real termite nests. And then in the surrounding rock, it's called the country rock, you also see the, the tube-like pattern. Even there's, there's no visual tubes there. The whole area has the same sort of uh, chemical uh, nature. It's all made of this quartz crystalline material. It's just different colors. And so he proved, and he published this, it's uh, published in um, mainstream uh, journal abstracts now, that these are not termite nests at all. They, are, they represent crystalline inorganic structures that formed in supersaturated conditions underwater. So I just think that's an amazing confirmation of one of, just one prediction of it from a creationist perspective. Shale beds. Uh, another argument is uh, shale beds, there's thousands and thousands of layers, up to hundreds of, 100,000 layers where you can see them over and over again. You got sand and then you got organic material and sand and organic material, one on top of the other, uh, sometimes 100,000 layers thick. And it's supposed to represent in mainstream literature, like these uh, Yaz Nazmi sea stacks, 
are supposed to represent an annual or, or multi-year pattern because it's thought that the worms that uh, uh, go and eat the organic material, they make these little tubes and see the tubes of the worms that then got filled in as a negative image. And then as the sand came up on top of them, uh, it's argued that the, uh, the flow of sand that created the, this kind of turbididic underground or underwater mud flow that covered up the organic layer and uh, that that sand layer somehow killed the worms that made these tubes and then it had to repopulate the new population for the next organic layer that slowly <coughs> settled out of the muddy water. And um, so then that took time, uh, extensive periods of time, so like a year or two per layer. And so this obviously represents a couple, between 100,000 years and 200,000 years. But I, again, this is from Glenn Morton's website, and I got into a debate with him. And I was like, have you ever gone to the beach and tried to bury one of those little critters? You know, the little burrowing uh, uh, little... And you, I take a big pile of sand and, and just plop it on there, and you know, in, in less than a minute, the thing crawls out the top and makes a little pile on the top, you know. And then the next wave comes in and it washes away the pile. His argument was that uh, that these things are all horizontal, and that if it had have escaped, if there were escape burrows, there should be these little piles on top, and they're not there. And so, I was like, well, what's on top? Uh, are there any? Is there any evidence of water flow? on top, and sure enough, it, these are the tops, and on the bottom are the, are the little preserved burrows, but on the top of each sandy layer you see ripple marks. And so there was current flowing on the top, and so it's like the wave coming in, it washes away all these little burrows. And I was like, you can't kill these little critters just by putting, and some of the sand layers are thinner than the, than the worm, or, or the burrowing organism. There, it's like, you can't kill something like that, it's just gonna climb through, and then the sediment from the, from the silty, um, uh, water settles out and they start munching away happily as before. It's the same creatures in every layer. And these layers can be developed very rapidly because you get a little uh, disturbance in one region and it sends down a turbidic flow, an underground mud flow, and then you get another one somewhere else. If there's a lot of upheaval going on, you can get these things layering all over the place. And then the current's going to be flowing over, wa washing away the escape burrow remnants. And so it's like, it, this can, is perfectly consistent with catastrophe or at least rapid deposition. Problems for mainstream geology. They, uh, let's, they have their own problems too. Uh, we're not the only ones with problems with our, with our model. Um, the problem of first appearance. Uh, every time you hear of the first time some, some fossil is identified in the geologic column, uh, before too long, all of a sudden someone finds something older. And things are getting older and older and older as you go along. Um, all kinds of fossils are being pushed farther back in time and often dramatically so. For example, horseshoe crabs were thought to have appeared 350 million years ago until 2008. In 2008, now they're 450 million years old. And they still look like a horseshoe crab today. They haven't changed uh, to any distinguishable degree from the ones found in the fossil record versus ones that are alive today. You also have orb-weaving spiders that uh, recently dated 100 million years older than previously thought. Ants are 40 million years older than previously thought, all of within the last five years. And all, all these references are, you can find uh, to mainstream journals on my website. I just don't have room to list them all here. Um, DetectingDesign.com, and I'll have that at the end as well. Crayfish uh, thought to have descended from lobsters 140 million years ago. 
now thought to be as much as 300 million years old. So when do things first appear? All, it's just getting older and older. The more people look and the more experience we have with the fossil record, things are getting older. And in fact, every single major animal phyla, you know, the whole little list, phylum, kingdom, order, family, genus, species, or what, every single major phyla is found in the lowest layer, except for one, perhaps one. And uh, 38 of them or so are found in the very lowest layer. All of them, and that's why they call it the Cambrian explosion. All of a sudden, there's no animals, and all of a sudden, wham, everything appears. All the major body groups uh, that are in existence, and many that are extinct now, appear all at the same time in the lowest layer, and it's called the Cambrian explosion. And surprisingly, most of these creatures that are still alive today don't look significantly different from their fossil counterparts. They haven't evolved like you would think over time. Over hundreds of millions of years, you'd think they'd at least be somewhat different. Like here, Rudskin said, it was a surprising to find that they aren't significantly different. Fragments of vascular plants, um, this is pretty interesting. First thought to appear in the Silurian 450 million years ago. And pollen, which is thought of flowering plants that make pollen, thought to be evolved less than 100 million years ago, um, have been found both vascular plants and pollen have been found in Precambrian rocks dated to 500 to 600 million years ago. And this is uncontroverted in, in literature. Here's a quote um, from the History of Science, uh, the uh, 21st International Congress. Modern geological opinion is unanimous that the salt range formation is Cambrian in India. But uh, Sani's uh, evidence for advanced plant and insect remains in the salt range formation is not easily dismissed. It would appear that there is still a contradiction between the geological and the paleontological evidence, just as there was during the time of active controversy. During the time of active controversy, ERG or Guy suggested that the conflict might be resolved by positing the existence of an advanced flora and fauna in the Cambrian. This idea was summarily dismissed at the time, but although it challenges accepted ideas about the evolution of life on Earth, it appears to provide the best fit with the different lines of evidence. This is published in 2001. So for the past 50 years, this has been a debate. Do flowering plants really first appear? Uh, only 100 million years ago? Or did they exist like everything else in the Cambrian explosion? All these high-level plants, do they exist at the bottom with everything else? And uh, no one has really solved this problem. It's a big mystery in mainstream science, but you don't hear about it often. Because this is not something uh, most scientists like to publish in uh, general education uh, environments. So just to show you again, here, uh, let's see. First flowering plants, right up here, right? Yet they found the pollen of these plants down here in the Cambrian and even Precambrian layers. And it's uncontroverted. They have uh, done repeated analysis of that, and it's repeatable over and over and over again. Same thing with the first vascular uh, plants. Somewhere right here, first vascular plants. Fragments of these plants, not just pollen, fragments of the plant itself have been found down here in these layers. So how is that explained? Uh, the problem of last appearance. Uh, a lot of things uh, live in the fossil record, then they disappear in the fossil record, and then they reappear live and well today. For example, coelacanths. They're, these are the fish that have bony little fins that are supposed to be one of the first fish to come and walk out on land and then turn into land animals. Uh, and get rid of the lungs and everything. 
and they lived, or they were present in the fossil record uh, for over a few hundred million years, or actually 100 million years, and then they disappeared completely from the fossil record 80 million years ago. There's no more fossil coelacanths in the fossil record. And uh, then in 1938, they were found alive and well off the coast of South Africa, and then several other islands since then. Perfectly alive, swimming around, uh, doing just fine. So what happened? How the, obviously, the coelacanths were there the whole time because they're alive and well now. So why weren't they being fossilized? Uh, the argument is, is that, uh, that it's a different species, uh, genus and species, of uh, coelacanth in the fossil record. And the one living now uh, lived in a different environment that was not as suitable to fossilization. Uh, so here's the fossil one, and uh, they don't have the little... One guy argued with me that says, see, there's an evolutionary difference. That's why they call it a different genus and species, because this one doesn't have bones and it spins, and this one does. But really, this is just a drawing, and they didn't draw in the bones because the fossil imprint didn't have them. But obviously, it, it did have them. And the, another one guy argued, he's like, well, look, the bones of the head are different. See the bones here? But if you look at them, the bones of the head are exactly the same bones. They're just slightly different sizes and shapes. It's no different than like a Great Dane and a, and a Chihuahua or a pug-nosed dog. Just because the bones in the head are slightly different shapes doesn't mean they're not dogs, right? So why do you give different genus and species names for one versus the other when like this morning I showed you uh, Kenmer 1470, Homo habilis, and Zinge. They looked very, very different given same genus and species name. Why? Because they're both in the fossil record together. Whereas here, one is live and the other one's in the fossil record, so they give them different genus and species names. It's very subjective. Uh, oh, I just I wanted to mention the whole argument that uh, they lived in different environments and that's why they didn't get fossilized. It's interesting because let's say you have uh, for millions of years, coelacanths are doing fine in this environment, and finally they go extinct and they die out and they are not fossilized. But you have coelacanths living elsewhere that are potentially really close to the coelacanths that died out of the environment where they got fossilized. Why didn't the coelacanths that lived elsewhere where they're not prone to fossilization kind of evolve back into the niche over 80 million years and take over again where their uh, cousins died out? It just doesn't make sense that they're so isolated for 80 million years that they can't uh, occupy the same habitats that their very close cousins occupied successfully for hundreds of millions of years, or over 100 million years. So that argument doesn't sound to, at least it doesn't make much sense to me. Coconino sandstone. This is very interesting. Uh, in the Grand Canyon, you can see it. It's the white layer, third from the top, right here. It's uh, supposed to represent um, many millions of years, over 10 million years of desert environments, desert sand dunes. Within these sand dunes, interesting enough, you can find imprints of all kinds of creatures, uh, lizards and salamanders, uh, wet environment creatures, uh, even scorpions and spiders, all kinds of creatures you can find. What's really weird about these things, several things. Uh, here's, this is in stone. Now, and you notice that you can see high details. Not only can you see all their little toes, but you can see the toenails preserved, the imprints of the toenails preserved. Um, on This is salamander track here. Um, so what desert environment, have you ever gone to like Death Valley or something and tried to make an imprint there? What desert environment would preserve this kind of detail in the, in the track? Um, Dry sand, does it dry sand preserve that kind of detail? Also, what in the world is a salamander doing in the middle of the desert? 
Here is dry sand tracks on dry sand. Does that look like what we see in the calcaneal sandstone? Now, then uh, Leonard Brandy the, took these pictures and published this paper at, from Loma Linda. He took a uh, water bottle and squirted the sand to make it just damp on top, but still dry underneath. And then he had the creatures walk over it uh, with it just damp on top. And this is the trackway. Does that look like it? No. And here, here's the uh, same, except with the salamander. It kind of breaks it up. It falls apart. It doesn't preserve the fine detail. And then uh, I argued with somebody else. He says, well, the reason, oh, this is another funny thing. All these tracks go uphill. None go downhill. They, they may go somewhat sideways, uh, but they all go uphill, and then they disappear. And some will be walking along, and then they'll suddenly disappear without any a trace. And I was like, what happened? The salamander go flying off into space somewhere? You know, no, that's very strange. So I asked the, you know, Antarctic Origins, what is the explanation for this? The explanation, they said, is that the, the lizard or whatever would walk up to the top of the sand dune, and then it would slide down the other side, and the sand would roll behind it and cover up the track. I was like, huh. So Leonard Brand, uh, he took a picture of the lizard going downhill. And does the track cover it up? No, it's still there. And also, can you imagine if you're a little lizard or something and, you, and your hole is back uh, like five feet away, but it happens to be downhill, and you happen to be at the top of the sand dune, would you go back downhill to get into your little burrow, or would you go all the way down the sand dune and walk all the way around and then come back up to your hole? No. So, Leonard Brand took the, here's the uh, underwater. Here's the lizard underwater. And you see the little trackways? Can you see all the toes? So it looks like possibly either it was heavily wet sand, really, like if you walk on the beach and you're a little farther in from the shore, it's kind of hard to make a footprint because the sand is so hard, right? If you walk a little closer to the water, it's a little softer and you can make a deeper footprint, right? So either the sand was very wet or perhaps even underwater. And so he did comparisons between dry sand and damp sand and wet sand and underwater sand and coccinino sand. So this is the coccinino print as far as preservation of toe marks and sole impressions. So preservation of sole impressions, pretty good. Preservations of toe marks, pretty good in the coccinino sandstone. Is it as good in dry sand for toe marks? Not as good. But the sole impression is pretty good, right? But the toe marks don't match. Damp sand, similar. Wet sand. Uh, is, you know, the toe marks are pretty good, but since it's so hard, you can't make the sole impressions very good. Uh, so which one is the best match? Underwater sand. So, and they're all going uphill. So do you think maybe they're trying to escape some sort of watery increase, perhaps? It doesn't seem to make sense as far as desert sand. There's also a lot of other factors. The, the nature, the angle of the sand dunes is different versus dry sand versus underwater sand dunes and whatnot. And you, I have all that listed, but I don't have time to discuss it all today. But if you're interested in the full paper that Brand published, uh, you can either look up his paper or you can go to my website and I have the direct reference to it. Footprints versus bones. This is also from Leonard Brand. Um, you notice that these in the fossil record, you have preservation of footprints within the rock of the, of the geologic column, and you have preservation of bodies. So body fossils, here's a clear box, and trackways, which is the colored in areas. Notice something really interesting, that the trackways do not track with the number of bodies found. The number of bodies of the same creature for amphibians, here's a bunch of trackways, and the bodies keep going. What happened to amphibians stop walking? 
You know, same thing for reptiles. Here's a bunch of trackways. The body's not very prominent, and then the trackways go down, and then the body count goes up, and then there's a kind of a, a sudden drop in both. No more trackways beyond this, and there's a drop in body count here. But the bodies keep going, but the trackways don't for reptiles. Same thing with dinosaurs or bigger reptiles, and other reptilia, same sort of pattern. So it's, it's either the, did the feet evolve before the bodies, or what happened? It almost seems, this is my theory, is that here's all the flood, 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 things survived, walked around a little bit, more and more creatures died until everything died. Cretate, this is the uh, Cretaceous, where it's the chalk layer, and uh, toward the end of the flood, I would think, because all the algal blooms uh, in the oceans got developed, and they made these massive, massive chalk layers, which are seen all around the globe. And I think this is, represents the resolution or the end of the flood where everything got buried and uh, the animals no longer walked around anymore because they were dead. Rapid burial, evidence of sudden widespread catastrophe. Fossil bone orientation. Wherever you go where there's massive dinosaur bone graveyards, you will notice something that, that they're oriented with respect to flow. This isn't the greatest picture to illustrate this, but if you do GPS ma mapping, uh, Arthur Chadwick has done this, and he's shown that uh, massive fall, fossil graveyards, you can kind of see it better here. You see them kind of lined up. Uh, how does this ex is explained, given that your usual picture that you see on cartoons and whatnot, the dinosaurs walking along, the uh, volcanoes blowing up, and they got uh, all uh, toxic effects from the asteroid hitting, the sun got blocked out, it got too cold, and they fell over dead. Right? What happens? The dinosaurs get, uh, can't go on anymore and they all decide, hey, which way are you falling over, Bob? I'm going to fall this way. Oh, me too. Boom. They all fall the same way, heads in the same direction, tails in the same direction. All the long bones either perpendicular or parallel to the same common orientation. How does that happen without a watery catastrophe? And even in mainstream sciences, it is admitted that, like for example, the Morrison Formation. That's huge. Arizona, New Mexico, all the way up to Canada, massive formation. Throughout this whole full formation, everything's oriented with respect to flow, same direction. And it's, in the previous video, in the previous lecture, we saw that this orientation, at least with current orientation, <coughs> is not only continent-wide, it's multi-continent-wide and even worldwide, according to some of the latest studies by Arthur Chadwick. A little information on Jurassic formation. It's famous for its millions of dinosaur fossils that are um, well-preserved. It averages 100 meters or 300 feet in thickness. It's one million square kilometers from Canada to Texas. Uh, it's distributed, and everybody admits this, by widespread, widespread flowing water. The standard argument is that this flowing water originally represented a river channel, and the river overflowed and trapped these dinosaurs in these uh, seasonal floods. And that's why the Morrison Formation got formed over long periods of time by sequences of serial uh, floods that are local in nature. However, there's no large river channels in this formation. And the same thing happens elsewhere. There's massive um, deposits of dinosaurs in Montana that are also the results of flood dep deposition. In mainstream literature, this is recognized. There's some other uh, very fine preservations. This is a Triceratops and a Vicelaraptor. And they are frozen like this, fighting each other. They're just, boom, buried. And uh, some people argue that this is a massive sandstorm or a, a, 
a collapse of a sand bank that covered them. Uh, but it seems to uh, be, be at least consistent with a catastrophic uh, situation as well. Here's a, a fish-like creature that is frozen in time giving birth. This is a baby coming out. Very well preserved. Also, all of these things are pointed in the, there's like 30 or 40 of them in different spots in the, around the globe, and they're all pointed the same direction uh, and highly preserved. Here's uh, 300 or so whales in Peru. They're highly preserved. Even the baleen is not fossilized in the whale. Uh, and, and they're also pointing in similar directions. And they're buried uh, without being smashed. They're, they're uh, significant thickness. So how do you bury a whale slowly and have it preserved so well? Because whales that die and sink in oceans today, they sink to the bottom and they are scavenged relatively rapidly. And these whales do not show significant evidence of scavenging at all. So, and they're buried by, you know, how thick is a whale? Uh, they're really uh, had to have been buried very rapidly by uh, massive algal blooms. This is diatomaceous earth. Um, so it's a kind of a catastrophic conditions. The earth, the oceans, I believe, after the flood were very warm and nutrient rich because a lot of stuff had been dying. And the oceans also, the volcanoes going up everywhere. It just loaded the oceans with nutrients and they were warm. And that's perfect condition for an algal bloom that can kill off whales on massive quantities and bury them very rapidly without any scavenging or significant scavenging. Similar situation is found in Santana Formation. It's located in northeastern Brazil. It's also Cretaceous. Cretaceous means those little um, uh, foraminifera and uh, algal uh, animals. It's said to be, to be between 92 and 108 million years old. Uh, there are fine examples of all kinds of things, pterosaurs, reptiles, amphibians, invertebrates, insects, plants, uh, even large dinosaurs. Uh, Manoraptor was described in 1996. But what's especially interesting to me is that there's millions of fish found in this formation. And the fish were preserved in such a degree that the, the gills, the cellularity of their gills, it was still turgid. It was still had a pressure, right? It, it hadn't had time to collapse. Usually when a fish dies within a few hours, the gills collapse. These fish, they were fully expanded. They had not had time to collapse before they were perfectly preserved. The, they had not shed their scales. Uh, usually fish, when they die in water, they bloat and float and lose their heads because it's a loose ligament attachment. No, this didn't happen in the Santana Formation. In fact, they, it's described that they were fossilized so f rapidly that it's called the Medusa effect. You know, and you get touched by Medusa and turned to stone, or you look at Medusa and get turned to stone instantly. Um, David Martill, in 1989, he published a paper arguing that these fish were so well preserved that they had to be fossilized or uh, in, in the state that they're currently in within one hour after death. Is that catastrophic or, or what? So here's another um, creature, the uh, um, horseshoe crab. And you can see its trackway. Walk, 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 walk. Stop walking. What happened? It's not, no scavengers. It didn't get eaten up or disintegrated uh, or anything like that. It had to have been buried rapidly. So the, the standard argument is that this uh, horseshoe crab wandered into an anoxic lake and then it uh, ran out of oxygen and died. And before, uh, and then it got preserved like that because there's 
Um, it's an anoxic lake and nothing lived there. The problem with this is that there are anaerobic bacteria and semi-anaerobic organisms that live in these anoxic lakes and that they uh, things decay unless they're buried rapidly and preserved. And also, even if you uh, put a few layers on top of something, if, there, if you don't put a bunch on top, a whole bunch of layers and make it thick, there are organisms that like to dig down and tunnel down into sediment to see if they can find any organic stuff to eat. And it's called bioturbation. They start stirring, thing up, stirring materials up, and before 10 or so years, there's no more layers left because it's all mixed up again. It's called bioturbation. These layers are not stirred up. There's no bioturbation. In other words, they had to have been very buried very quickly in order to avoid this effect. Yellowstone Ridge um, in Yellowstone National Park, um, there's Specimen Ridge, I'm sorry. There's these trees, fossilized trees, that are buried in the position of growth. In other words, they're buried upright. So, and, there, and there's 65 layers of them. And so the argument is that these represent um, forests that were replaced by other forests and then buried, and then another forest grew on top of them, and then that one was buried by volcanic ash and stuff, and then another forest grew on top of that 65 times. Of course, that ta that would take tens and tens of thousands of years to happen, um, and it kind of would falsify the whole flood idea. So what's the argument for this? Well, when Mount St. Helens blew up and uh, threw a whole bunch of trees into Spirit Lake, the trees, when they sink, uh, they tend to get waterlogged on one side versus the other, and they always sink perpendicular, I mean, um, vertically in the position of growth. And then when they get to the bottom, they stay like that for a while until more sediment gets, comes in and holds it up, holds them upright. Also, these trees have no bark on them, no branches on them. They're, uh, you can see here's the bottom. The roots are just like little balls like this. There's no extensive root patterns. Uh, there's also no animals in these forests. There's no animal remains at all. No antlers, no eggs, no bones, no nothing. Also, the, uh, the leaves are water sorted and they don't show decay from top to bottom. If you find deciduous leaves, sometimes you find a lot of deciduous leaves around uh, pine trees. And sometimes you find massive pine needles only around deciduous trees. So it's much more consistent with a flood model. The sediment between these leaves is also sorted, course defined. And how do you get sorting in a natural forest? Um, I think I covered most of these uh, evidences that I think it's uh, uh, mudslides, one after another, that brought, the, brought these trees in and uh, underwater mudslides and the trees sank in the position of growth and then the mudslides preserved them. They also are, show no decay. When a top of a tree comes up to a, top, a layer where it's cut off, you, and if it was really a uh, true forest, you would expect that tree to rot a little bit before the next forest grew up and it kind of would decay that tree. But these trees do not show decay. When they're cut off, they're cut off clean and they're preserved, just like that. Also, um, Michael Ark did a PhD dissertation in 1991 and he analyzed tree rings from different levels within these layers uh, and he showed that the tree rings matched. The tree rings and the different layers match each other and so he argued that these tree trees lived at the same time and uh, uh, they weren't representative of separate uh, forests, that they all lived at the same time in the different layers. Also, the volcanic ash, if you detect the, the chemical signature for volcanic ash, it changes after about three months. If a volcano blows up three months later, there's a detectable change in the signature. 
Whereas if you go to Specimen Ridge and you detect a chemical signature for the different layers, they interact with, there's the same signatures interdigitate with each other. The same signature on the lower layer will be found in higher layers, even upwards to the top layers. And so uh, arguing that the same exact chemical signature can be found on multiple layers if they're truly representative of uh, separate uh, forests doesn't make sense, given how chemical signatures change uh, within a few months' time in real life. There's also been um, fossilized trees that extend through multiple layers, not just multiple layers, but this particular tree extends through two different layers of coal. It's argued that uh, coal takes a long time to form, uh, and so how could a tree survive being buried by multiple layers slowly if all these layers represent vast periods of time? Uh, and there's lots of examples of these polystrate trees. And this one, I have a little video clip for, for this particular one. Not far from this coastal area near Flat Rocks Point is an object of extreme geological interest, an ancient tree. The fossilized remains of this tree can be seen extending through over 12 feet of sedimentary layers between two coal seams located here. Years ago, when a mining company excavated the layers exposing the tree, the bottom of the tree could be seen extending down to the lower coal seam. Since that time, the lower part of the tree has broken off. Even now, in its reduced length, the tree extends through layers geologists normally theorize to have taken hundreds of thousands of years to accumulate. But these layers could not have taken long ages to accumulate because the tree would have rotted long before the sediments would have had time to accumulate around them. So, so when you present that evidence, then people will uh, predictably argue, well, that was a local catastrophe. Uh, anytime you find uh, a situation like that. But it's hard to explain a local catastrophe that forms two layers of coal <coughs> that the tree penetrates. Because, again, coal is supposed to form over long periods of time. Then there's this uh, Powder River Basin talking about coal. It's a massive seam of coal. It is, um, it, this coal seam covers 10,000 square miles. It is 200 feet thick. It's very pure. You would think if coal formed over long periods of time with compression of peat bogs that you would get influxes of clay and whatnot to, to contaminate the coal. But this is not, uh, this is not the case for the Powder River coal. Um, consider also that it takes six feet of vegetation for one foot of coal. So if you have a 200-foot coal seam that's 200 feet thick, how much vegetation is that? 1,200 feet, right? Six times 1,200 feet. Of, and how does that happen slowly and m maintain purity? That much uh, organic matter compressed together. Here's another little video clip. So let's take a closer look at the evidence for coal formation as it occurs in the spectacular Powder River Basin in Wyoming and Montana. The Amax Eagle Butte Open Pit Mine near Gillette, Wyoming, exposes the vast coal reserves made visible by the strip mining methods used here. That's all coal. The Eagle Butte Mine boasts of coal layers or seams with thicknesses ranging up to 120 feet. Eagle Butte Mine is part of a much larger coal-rich area known as the Powder River Basin. This gigantic 10,000-square-mile reserve, situated between the Black Hills of South Dakota on the east and the Bighorn Mountains on the west, 
extends northward to the Yellowstone River in Montana and southward to Casper, Wyoming. The immensity of the Powder River Basin coal deposits has attracted the attention of geologists for decades. Such interest was documented in the May 1993 issue of Earth Magazine. The article, Powder River Coal, Geologic Enigma, Environmental Dilemma, included these statements. Powder River's coal seams run remarkably thick and unsullied by other material. Usually, unwanted sediment such as clay washes over a deposit before coal seams can get very thick. But Powder River coal is packed in immense strips, some more than 200 feet thick. These seams stretch vast distances up and down the basin. They're hundreds of miles long. They're 50 miles wide, says James McClurg, a geologist at the University of Wyoming. They're not little pods of an acre or two. They're immense things. McClurg, who studied the basin for more than a decade, says no other place in the world has as many seams 50 feet or more thick. But the Powder River Basin is not only an economic resource. To geologists, it's also an intriguing scientific enigma. Geologists have been studying the basin for more than a century, largely to answer a baffling question. How did the seams get so massive? Or more precisely, why weren't the seams diluted by influxes of clay and other impurities before they thicken? Any idea? My, I'll just tell you my idea. My idea is that if you, got, if you have a massive flood and you have an early developing mount, mountain range or large hillside or whatnot, and you've got massive amounts of uprooted uh, plant material, and uh, you get this water and you smash it into the side of that thing, you can concentrate massive quantities of plant material all in one spot, and it will be pure because the water sorts it out. It sorts out the impurities and makes it just plant material. No clay, no other contaminants, and then it gets buried. All this massive mat of plant material, then it gets buried under sediment, under high pressure, watery conditions, and heat, you get coal rapidly. Uh, weird thing about the Morrison Formation, too, is that uh, uh, it has hardly any plant fossils throughout most of its sequence. Not, no longer this uh, coal formation. I'm just talking about the Morrison again. It's a barren of plant fossils throughout most of its sequence, and yet you've got some big dinosaurs, lots and lots and millions of them living in the Morrison Formation time period area, what did they eat? You know, why, what, how did the dinosaurs get preserved and no trace or hardly any traces of plant materials get preserved? What on earth did all these big animals eat? Considering that a large dinosaur, a vegetarian dinosaur, eats three to four tons of vegetation per day. Where is it? Probably off in the, more, in the uh, coal reserve there, huh? Um, uh, it's also strange that uh, the past creatures in the fossil record are often bigger and arguably better than their modern-day counterparts. Um, question is, why are things shrinking, dying off? I mean, the, the prehistoric world was much richer than it is today. The vast majority of creatures or types of creatures that have ever lived are extinct. And the ones that do exist still are smaller than their counterparts, more sickly, and uh, more diseased and tend to have more problems. So why is that? Um, here's just a few examples. A glyptodont 
one to two ton armadillo. Like to have that in your garden? And yes. <laughs> Shoe armadillo. <laughs> Please move on. Here's a giant beaver, 8.2 feet, estimated weight up to 485 pounds. Talk about a beaver dam and chewing up all your forest, you know. That's a beaver. Uh, giant sloths, you know, the, here's me in Brazil, and here's the sloth we have today. Little booger compared to this one. See that? Giant sloths lived and then, then they went extinct because they couldn't get enough food probably. After the flood, I think the world was warm and very rich and verdant, and these creatures were able to survive for a few hundred years. This is a giant wolf up here that in the fossil record can get up to six feet tall at the shoulder. Okay, wolf pack, don't need a wolf pack. <laughs> Just one wolf will do. Giant dragonflies, uh, deeper in the, to the fossil record. How'd you like to have a dragonfly with a 2.5 foot wingspan? It'd come off and take off small babies and stuff. This is a uh, giant uh, monkey, a uh, gorilla. Pretty large, huh? Up to 10 feet tall, uh, over three meters high. Uh, he's, these gorillas don't exist anymore. Massive gorilla. Like to come up against that? You think, I mean, <laughs> you think some of these movies are fairy tales? They're based on something. Uh, Neanderthals, again. Neanderthals were bigger. Their brains were bigger. Their bodies were stronger. They could... Uh, run longer, they're arguably smarter and more fit than we are today. And the old version is no longer true. This is the new John Picard version. Megalodons, giant sharks. You think a great white is, is big? A great white shark, usually big ones are around 20 feet long. Uh, these megalodons were 50 feet long, and some say that they're uh, arguably up to 100 feet long. Uh, 30 meters big. So here's the megalodon. It could eat the great right by itself. I mean, that would be like not even worth the snack for the scuba diver. It's just amazing how things have gotten reduced over time. Ancient DNA and pollen. Uh, this is getting a little bit more technical, but I think it's very interesting. Uh, DNA, remember the O.J. Simpson trial? No one remembers that? <laughs> O.J. Simpson is now in jail again. But Anyway, during that trial, DNA evidence was brought up and generally dismissed because of the argument that DNA degrades rapidly over time. It self-degrades. And so uh, what's DNA doing, intact DNA doing, in a 130-million-year-old weevil? In this weevil, they went and extracted some DNA, and it was intact. They could sequence it. They found DNA in a 20-million-year-old magnolia leaf that was still wet. How did the DNA survive? 40-million-year-old bacterial spores, they didn't just find DNA in them. The spores, when they put them on enriched media, they grew. They're still alive. So that means that not just DNA was intact, but the whole genetic code was intact and ATP was intact, enough energy to get it going. How does that happen over... 40 million years, or 250 million years in salt, salt crystals, these bacteria were still alive. 
sequenced T-Rex, uh, proteins, intact blood cells, and flexible soft tissues. Just recently, Mary Schweitzer, uh, no one had ever done this because no one ever thought it could be possible, so never, no one ever tried until someone came along and didn't know that it was possible, so they accidentally tried. They, they took a, a piece of dinosaur bone, a T-Rex bone, and they dissolved away all the calcium from it wasn't fossilized. There was soft tissue in there that was not fossilized. It was still springy. Bing, you know, they, they had intact blood, ve uh, blood vessels and blood cells inside of the blood vessels. I don't know if you can see it here, but these little red dots are red blood cells. And they also have osteoclasts in them and other types of cells in them here. And this is a scanning micrograph of the, of the cells. They're a little bit fractured, but you can see the nucleus bulge that's still there. This looks just like fresh uh, chicken. So the idea for the movie Jurassic Park is not too far off, right? Oh, well, it's, it's fragmented DNA. I have to qualify this. Um, here's her reaction to it. She says, I mean, can you imagine pulling a bone out of the ground after 68 million years and then getting intact protein sequences? Asked John Asaro, Beth Israel, Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Medical School, lead author of one of the studies. That's just mind-boggling how much preservation there is in these bones. The new finding will be viewed skeptically, admitted one of the researchers involved in the two studies. It's very, very, very controversial because most people have gone on record saying there's absolute, an absolute time limit to anything that's protein or DNA as far as preservation is concerned, says uh, Mary Schweitzer, a molecular paleontologist at North Carolina State University. John Parks commented in a fairly recent issue of Nature, there is also the question of how uh, bacterial biopolymers can remain intact over millions of years in dormant bacteria or conversely if bacteria are metabolically active enough to repair biopolymers. This raises the question of what energy source could last over such a long period of time without completely decaying like, like ATP. Thomas Lindell, 1993. Deprived of repair mechanisms provided in living cells, fully hydrated DNA is spontaneously degraded to short fragments over a time period of several thousand years at moderate temperatures. The apparent observation that fully hydrated plant DNA might be retained in high molecular mass for 20 million years is incompatible with known properties of chemical structure of DNA. In 1991, popular journal Science, Jeremy Surface expressed bewilderment he argues uh, that DNA could survive for such a staggering length of time was totally unexpected, almost unbelievable. Almost unbelievable. But of course, you have to believe it because dinosaurs have to be millions. And no one asked the question, maybe the dinosaurs aren't millions of years old. No one asked that question. Uh, why not? You know, you can't fathom that thing. How could, how could Darwin be wrong? Here's a dinosaur mummy uh, called, dubbed Leonardo, dated at 77 million years. Uh, it's a hydrosaur, the most complete dinosaur fossil ever discovered. It has a mummified heart, liver, stomach that contains magnolia, fern, and conifer vegetation, probably with intact DNA. Uh, the excellent preservation and lack of scavenging indicate rapid, even catastrophic burial and a massive flood. That's their words, not mine. Of course, mainstream scientists believe that this fossil, or this flood was a local flood, despite the fact that most fossils seem to have been buried very rapidly by water catastrophes of massive proportions. Here you can see the skin. You see the little scales of the skin? They haven't cut it open yet. They've only done CT analysis of it because they don't want to damage it. 
But I bet you if they cut it open and they did some uh, calcium, removed the calcium, there would still be soft tissues in this dinosaur because every dinosaur bone that they've done it to has had preserved soft tissue in it that's not fossilized. And uh, that's all I have for this one. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.